Church in Evansville, Indiana. Be sure to subscribe for weekly updates and visit us at resurgencecommunity.com. So last week when we talked about how do you go about interpreting Scripture, uh, we've been doing uh, how do you study your Bible. The first uh, week we talked about observe, 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 and what else? Observe, exactly. Very good. Glad to know everybody's paying attention. Um, uh, if everybody would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy. Uh, you'll notice in your handouts we included this like we did last week. Right here, literary types of the Bible. So that when you're reading, and you can look to this little chart that I typed up for you, uh, this would hopefully help you when you're interpreting Scripture. Uh, one thing that needs to be said that is extremely important as you're turning to 1 Timothy 2. Uh, when you go to study your Bible, the more time that you spend in observing everything that you see, the less time and the less um, hardship you will have in interpreting what you see. If you spend no time observing and you move, you move directly to trying to interpret what you read, you're going to come up with something really screwed up. Okay? Uh, so let me just encourage you that when you're going to read the Bible and you're like, oh, I've been on five verses for a month, cool. Let's hope that you know those five verses more hardcore than anybody else in the church. Uh, observe, observe, observe. So here is the great controversial passage. Uh, that we left off with last time. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, and this was your homework, so everybody should have uh, some, some opinion, uh, some edu let me say it this way, some educated opinion about what this means. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what does that mean? Three questions we ask ourselves whenever we're looking at Scripture. Number one, what does it say? Number two, what does it mean? And number three, how does it apply to me? The big controversy we left off with was, right, Paul's a male chauvinist, right? And the feminists are outside picketing his little house that he's huddled into while he's writing all this stuff. And they're setting his car on fire and all that good stuff, right? That's what's going on. You guys awake today? Come on. It's okay laughing, church. <laughs> yeah, but you're not funny. Okay. <laughs> what does this mean? Anybody want to take a stab at it? I mean, let's think about what this says. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Does that mean that women cannot take on a teaching position over children or other women in the church? Not at all. Not at all. So what is Paul's reasoning for why he makes this statement? Yes? It goes back to Genesis when uh, God said that, uh, what was it? It says, uh, your desire will be for him, but he will rule over you. Okay, part of, the, part of the curse. Okay. Yeah. 
Yes, there, there is a hierarchy that God has established, okay? From God to the man, from the man to the woman, woman to the child. God has set this up very clearly in Scripture. If, if that, like, makes your toes curl or whatever, cool. Because you don't have a problem with me, you have a problem with God's Word. That's where it's listed at. Now, in understanding this, why is it that a woman should learn in all quietness and be submissive in church? Does that mean that you can't talk in church? Is that what that means? No, we know that's not what it means. So what does it mean? Bueller? Yes, Rick. I, okay, this is a guess. I, I think basically it, it means that it's trying to stand apart from like a struggle over authority or, or you know what I mean? It, it, instead of feeling, I think he's, at, he's going toward an attitude uh, of rebellion or something. Okay. In, instead of having, I, you know, I don't, he doesn't say a guy can't learn from a woman. I've learned things from women. But he wants to like head off the past any kind of church struggle. Okay. Or, or something like that, you know? Uh, okay. That, that's, that's, that's a good go. Let me ask you this. How many of you have heard the phrase, well, uh, blah, 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 because she wears the pants in that family? How many people have heard that? That's a common phrase that we throw around, right? Yeah, a lot of people have heard that because she wears pants in that family. That's why. Can't you see how whipped he is? All that stuff. Now, here's the thing. Men... Uh, and for some, and I understand this part of the curse. For some reason, women want to have control of the relationship. Am I wrong? Girls, if you say no, you are lying to God, okay? You know, you know this, and you know that you got clever little tricks and things that you do in order to sway things your way. Don't even act like you don't, okay? Don't even act like you don't. Um, it, is, it is a man's calling by God to lead his family, okay? Now, why is it that a woman would need to remain quiet with all submissiveness in church? Here's the reason why. Because if she has a, a question to ask, where should the question be asked? To her husband. Why? Because he is supposed to know the answer. Would you say? Because he's the head of the family. Anytime that I've ever taken any couple through uh, premarital counseling, I said this to Heather and Clint. I said, Clint, you have got to be an amateur theologian, period. The reason is, is because your wife is going to read the Bible, and she's going to come to you, and she's going to go, Clint, what's this mean? And Clint's going to go, uh, i got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and he's going to take his Bible and probably three or four other books, and she's going to be like, what are you doing? And he goes to the bathroom and closes the door, right? We have got to know because they're going to ask. Because let's just be honest, women are way more prone to read their Bibles than men are. But men, that doesn't change the fact that you have a great responsibility of steering your wife correctly. As far as how she thinks and believes about Scripture and how she reads the Scriptures. And, and, it's a, it, and that's the thing. It's not a look at me, I'm on top, I'm first place kind of thing. It's a good gravy. I've got a massive responsibility that I need to make sure I'm faithful with. I need to make sure that I can see this through. Why? Because who are you answerable to? Who's above you? God. 
Because God directly wants to hold you accountable for how you go about teaching and leading your family. And here's the interesting thing. It is, and this is kind of a trick question, but think about this. Is leading the family, babe, we need to have hardcore Bible study right now for like 12 hours. Is that leading your family through the Word? You know what? A lot of times, husbands lead their wives through the Word by everything they do and everything they say. The decisions that they make. And a lot of times, your wives will learn from watching you operate and watching how God's Word is changing your life. And here's the thing. If you look like a pagan to your wife, she knows that you haven't been in the Word. Period. She does. Now, notice that Paul draws this argument back to Adam and Eve. Now, here's the controversial section of this. Look at the very last verse here, verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Does that mean if you don't have any kids, you're not going to heaven? No, we know that can't be what it is. Why? Because it's a work. <laughs> it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's work on both parts. <laughs> How... <laughs> light bulb comes on. How great would it be? Because here, husbands could get in trouble. This wouldn't be great because it would be twisting scripture. What if a husband came up to his wife and said, baby, if you want to go to heaven, don't lie, we would do that, okay? <laughs> we would do that. We would do that. <sighs> don't do that, okay? Go ahead, Dave. My question in, in studying this is save there actually salvation, you know, being raised up, you know, going to heaven saved, or is it in a different context like, kind of like redeemed, yeah. like, you know, okay, well you don't get to be the head of the household, but hey, you get to have kids and he can't do that. Exactly. Is there anything in the, and understand this word, this is a very important word when you're studying scripture, is there anything in the context that says anything about eternal damnation, eternal salvation, eternal life, any of that stuff? No. But notice that we've been so ingrained in our Western culture with saved automatically meaning from spiritual death to spiritual life that it's easy for somebody to ramble through this without really observing and looking at everything around it and immediately concluding, ah, it's talking about salvation. It's not. It's talking about yet she will be vindicated in her role. She will be a fulfiller of her role because of the ability that she's been given to do. God has created women to have children. Okay? Now, I don't want to get on the whole transgender Chaz Bono freakout session, okay, about who's trying to switch plumbing and stuff, okay? Of course, God never intended for that kind of stuff at all in His will. But what this is talking about is if you want to know what a fulfillment of a woman's role is, a lot of times the greatest satisfaction that a lot of women have faced, and if you're a mother in here and you think differently, that's fine. Let me know because I don't know, is having children. Would any mom disagree? Would any mom disagree that having children has been probably the greatest blessing in their life? You're all saved. Praise the Lord. I'm just kidding. <coughs> so... If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, that is to be qualities that characterize a woman. So that in no way is this talking about you can't be saved unless you have kids or anything like that. And it's not demeaning to women. It is actually showing that they have a special place that God has totally figured for them. Nobody else can fulfill that. Everybody cool on that? Anybody do their homework on this? And Anybody come up with something different? Anybody observe and interpret something different? Blake? 
don't get married. Okay. Basically, like it just says that um, if you get married, and I guess you could take having children as a logical next step, that you'll be more concerned with worldly problems. Okay. So it's saying essentially that it's better to remain single because you can devote more time to God, but if you get married, then you'll have more worldly issues, which like I guess you can interpret as you'll care more about you'll care about your spouse right. and children. Right. So I think it's just saying here that childbearing allows women like another outlet for the love that you said last week. Right. Okay. And, we, and yes, and we will be studying the whole marriage and singleness thing in, in April. Here, here's something real quick that, that a lot of people don't buy into. There have been people that are called to be single. Okay. There is nothing wrong with being called to be single. Nothing wrong at all. In fact, I've had conversation with some of you about being single and that God may have just called you to God calls people to that. There's nothing wrong with it. But God also calls people to get married. You know what I'm saying? Calls and people to get married. Read the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay. Now that we understand all that, that's our like interpretation part. Cool. Let's move to application. Everybody turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And that was just finishing up what I gave you guys for the end of last week. And this is going to be starting what we're talking about today. Now, here's what I'm going to do is <clears throat> I want to talk to you a little bit about what in the world does application mean. First, let's talk about some things that we use a substitute application. Here's four substitutes for application. If you want to write these down, please do. Because everybody thinks that they're applying the Word of God and they're really doing something else. So let's point out some of the things and ask you if this hits you. Go ahead, number one. Knowledge over action. Knowledge does what? Puffs up, but what? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. A lot of times, we substitute our time in sitting down with the Scriptures. And man, I read like the whole book of Philippians today. And all of a sudden, we're supposed to have this David Blaine-like levitating kind of thing going on because we're all of a sudden super spiritual and we've sprouted massive angel wings, right? Not true. Just because you know a lot here doesn't mean that it is played out in your life. The goal of God in saving people is to make us like Christ. Okay? It is to bring in His Lordship in our lives. Not Lordship in our salvation, Lordship in our discipleship. Okay? In other words, if you got a problem with lying, it is God's goal to have Christ be Lord over your life in that aspect of lying in order to keep you from lying, in order to give you something better than always resulting to being a compulsive liar. Does that make sense? God wants to change you. The goal of Bible study is life change. And what will that life change look like? It will look more like Christ. Never, ever, ever substitute knowledge over action. Just because you can understand all of Romans doesn't mean that you've applied all of Romans. Okay? Move on to the next one. Number two, superficial obedience instead of life change. Now, if you don't have a problem, let's just use lying because I use it. If you don't have a problem with lying and you read through the Bible and it's like you should not lie to one another, okay? Don't sit back and fold your arms and think, I've conquered that. Because you didn't have, really have a problem with it in the first place. You see what I'm saying? And all of a sudden we have notched it in our discipleship gun. Look how much we're progressing now because we don't lie. You didn't really have a problem with that in the first place. 
Don't chalk that up to superficial, puffing yourself up, look how great I am in Christ because I don't do this, okay? No, no, no. We're supposed to be addressing things that we do have problems with. Go to the next one. Rationalization instead of repentance. What does this mean? Somebody tell me what it is to rationalize. What I'm doing is really not all that bad, so, you know, I don't really need to be... Exactly. What I'm doing is just not that bad. Here's what I love. Have you ever been convicted about something that's going on and you bring it up to the people that you're with and they just think you're like a grade A butthole for it? Have you ever done that? Anybody ever done that? Man, I don't totally agree with... You've done that? Let me give you a great for instance. Passion of the Christ. Okay? I'm sitting there in the Passion of the Christ and in the beginning of the movie you're watching it and nobody's speaking English so you're like, right, we're trying to read subtitles going on. And then all of a sudden the disciples call Mary mother. Okay? Which Mel Gibson is what? Catholic. He's Catholic. And so his perspective of how he's looking at the whole realm of things, regardless if it's a lifelike depiction or not, his perspective is Catholic about the things. And so I'm sitting here immediately thinking, man, disciples shouldn't be calling Mary mother. And I brought that up to somebody. And they, <laughs> of all the things that you would gravitate on about that movie, why would that be it? Why is it that you have to have such an attitude about that? Has anybody ever experienced something like that? Now let me ask you a question. <laughs> Here's a great question. Am I a butthole? <laughs> Mitch is like, eh, kind of. But I mean, think of it. Is it wrong for me to bring something like that up? Let me ask you this. Is it true? Yes. Did it happen? Yes. It did happen? I don't know. The disciples did call Mary Mother? I don't know. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Does the Bible ever say that they called Mary Mother? Oh, no. In the movie. Yeah, in the movie it happens, yeah. But in the Bible, does it happen? <laughs> And what is supposed to be the authority? The Bible. Scripture. So I'm not as big of butthole as you all think I am, right? <laughs> At least I hope not. But my whole goal was, is it scriptural? Is it scriptural what we're looking at? Well, of all the things, let's not rationalize it. Let's look at it compared to the true word of God and let's see if we should really be thinking a certain way about this. Well, wait a second, because here's the thing we do. Well, if they're disciples and they're following Jesus, and I'm seeking to be a disciple and I want to follow Jesus, should I call Mary Mother too? Now you've got a whole world of problems that you've just opened the can to. If we don't think about these things scripturally, we get in trouble, we start rationalizing sin. Or, man, it won't hurt if I do this. Well, it wouldn't hurt if I just go this direction and don't, don't even play like we don't do this. We do this all the time where we sit there and we think about, here's what it is. I know that it's wrong. But I want to make it right for me to do it. If you have to question whether it's right or wrong, chances are it's wrong. So if you're having to question it, understand that you're getting ready to put your foot in the bear trap of sin. Don't rationalize sin. The fourth one. Emotional experience instead of volitional response or the retreat mentality. I've always made the joke, why is it that Christians are always retreating? How come they never want to stay on the front lines? Because they're getting their butts beat. That's a reason why. Emotional experience instead of volitional response. Emotional experience. Anybody had an emotional experience at church? Was your experience at church driven on emotion? Devoid of this. Don't get me wrong. You read something like the Psalms, and you see how worship is going on, and how David is seeking to glorify God through, he writes, uh, through what he writes. That's awesome. When you sit there and you dwell on the fact that, wow, 
It took God's son dying for me to be able to have a relationship with him. And those are things that if we sit there and we ponder, we meditate on, they're really deep. It's really deep things that will move our hearts to want. We would want to become tenderhearted about that situation. But have we ever been, oh, it's just all about being in the spirit. When I first got saved, I went to a charismatic church. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with charismatics. They're, they're, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ if they know Jesus. That's great. Fine. But I tell you this, I couldn't figure out why for two hours on Sunday I felt amazing. You know, I felt like high octane protein bar weightlifter kind of, <gasps> you know, you breathe real deep. And next thing you know, you're like all high from doing, you know, and your brain's up. Anybody ever done that? <laughs> Just trying to share my experience with you guys. All right. Don't judge me. Anyway, um, I, and I couldn't figure out why the other six and a half days throughout the week, I felt terrible. I felt absolutely awful. And I kept thinking, oh, well, maybe I just need to recommit my life. Maybe I just need to get rebaptized. Maybe, maybe I didn't really get saved the first time. Maybe I need to get resaved and reset. Anybody know how many times I've been baptized? I don't want to tell you. Anybody know how many times I've been saved? I don't want to tell you. Not as many as me. Yeah, I've only actually been saved once, but yeah. Yeah, my favorite place to hang out at church back then was the altar. You know, because when I was at the altar and when I was bawling and crying and, oh, God, you're so good. Yeah, he's so good, but man, I didn't need to be becoming a wreck about myself. And then when I would leave or whatever and I would do something wrong, immediately everything was driven by emotional experience. And that's, and if you're at a point in your life where like you sin and you're sitting here thinking, am I still saved? I thought I was saved. Maybe I wasn't really saved. Would somebody that's saved do a sin like that? It's a pretty big sin. Could God forgive a sin? I don't know if Jesus will keep me in that sin. I'm probably not saved anymore. And all of a sudden we have schizophrenic Christianity going on. Because when it's driven by emotion or back to the F train, when it's driven by your feelings, all of a sudden your whole Christian life becomes a wreck. Instead of when we read God's word, making a volitional response. Anybody been on retreat before? I'm not saying retreats are a bad thing. How did you feel when you came back from retreat? Really good retreat. Yeah, thumbs up, thumbs up. I talked to this girl one time. She went on this retreat. She got back, and I, I was coming out of church one time. I met her in the parking lot. She had just gotten dropped off. She's getting ready to go. I said, hey, how'd your retreat go? I'm ready to take on Satan. And she put, her, put up a dukes, right? And she was ready to fight, and I was like, yo, I'm not him, you know? Back up. Man, she was excited. Guess what? She's not in church today. Won't even go to church. Don't want anything to do with church. But yet at that moment, she was ready to rip off the, the, the gates of hell and, and put everybody in the headlock. It's right then when Satan comes against you the hardest, though. Exactly. Yeah, it's right then when Satan's going, this is going to be easy. And he winds up and decks us. If, if, if our lives, when we read the scripture, are based on emotions and not on a volitional response, looking at this and going, you know what, that's a big hole in my life. I need to do that. That's something that I need to set my mind towards, set my heart towards, set my prayers on, ask for the Holy Spirit to aid me in walking forward in this direction instead of, oh, the Bible makes me high. Oh, I'm really bad. Oh, the Bible makes me high. Oh, life sucks. Can't afford to do that, man. I'm serious. You, you, will, you will become almost suicidal in your Christianity. You will. Because your, your mind and your heart just can't hang with that. It can't. It's got to be rooted on the solid principles and promises that God's given in His Word. So, let's get started. If everybody look in Ephesians 4. 
And here's what I did. I found a portion of Scripture that gave some principles that we could easily go through, that we could easily just walk through, and we can ask the question, what, do, what, what does it say, what does it mean, and how does it apply to me? So, uh, and just real quick, if you don't have the CD from when Wes preached, Wes preached on the section right before this. He did an excellent, excellent job, so I encourage you to get it. Uh, if you know anything about the book of Ephesians, and he said this in his sermon, the first three books, in fact, a lot of Paul's writing, the first, or the first three books, first three chapters of Ephesians are all doctrinal. And the reason why Paul wants to lay up doctrine, doctrine's not a bad word, the reason why he wants to give you all of these spiritual uh, things is because he wants you to have a motivation for living our lives differently. And the big thing that he preaches in the first three chapters is grace. God had grace on you. You are in a position of being loved. You've been adopted as a son or daughter of God. He has richly blessed you. You have been saved. You are in the heavenly places with Christ. There is nothing that can remove you from him. And you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he has prepared beforehand for you to do. It's, it's, it's almost beautiful and mind-blowing to think of all that God has done. And so he starts in chapter 4 and gives it, now because all this stuff, here's how we should live as a response to all that God has done to us, and so or done for us. So look at verse 17. Now, I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, immediately, what do we see? What stands out? Does anybody know what the Bible commonly uses walk for? What does that mean? Huh? How you live your life. How you live your life. Being saved, instantaneous. You believe in Christ, boom, you're saved. You did nothing for it. You simply placed your trust in Christ. Jesus did everything for you, and he said that it's done. Now that you have been born again, it's time to learn how to walk. So we've got to learn, okay, if I've been born again, if I've been born into this newness of life, how do I walk? And here's the first thing that Paul says. Don't walk like Gentiles. What do we know about Gentiles? Yes. know the Lord, and when he says, you must no longer walk, Mm -hmm. That means you were just like them. And if and you think about how they behave and how you behaved, you know, then, then all of a sudden you have a contrast. You have you have a instruction. <laughs> exactly. Uh, under, understand what he said. Uh, let, let me phrase it this way. Gentiles did not know the Lord. He brought that up. But here's another thing. You were, we all were walking like Gentiles. Okay, it's just so happened I have this shirt on, so it's kind of funny, so I can demonstrate. I don't expect when you first come to Christ to go, dun, dun, and next thing you know, Jesus is on your chest, and man, you are super Christian, right? And you're ready to just, whew, gone. And next thing you know, you don't lie anymore, you don't steal anymore, you don't cheat anymore, you don't think anything wrong, you're always obeying your mother and father. God is first in everything, and you never fall, you never stumble. Why? Because I'm super Christ. No, not at all. We have to learn how to walk. And people who just get saved, usually they're still acting like pagans. They're still acting like people who don't know Jesus. All they know is, is that they need Christ. And that's it. How many people got saved and they knew more about Christ? Like they were super Christian. Anybody? Anybody just like go to Mario World 3-4 when they got saved. Anybody? <laughs> Eric did? That was crazy. You were? Yeah. Were you like immediately like hardcore legalistic obedient guy? 
Uh, I'll just say this. One time I preached a sermon in Taco Bell. Awesome. Okay, okay. Not were you zealous for the Lord. I'm saying immediately were you like, I'm not sitting, I ain't doing none of this stuff. And like, you didn't do it. Uh, It was a pretty sharp contrast. Okay, so that happened for you. Okay, for most people, it's not that way. Of course, we know that Eric is a special case of uh, how that would happen. So, I love you, man. I'm just playing. So, notice, how was it that the Gentiles walked? Notice, in the futility of their minds. Because where does spiritual warfare happen? In your mind. Satan can suggest anything to you to mess you up. That's where it's going to go, in your mind. If he can get you to think something that is wrong, that is against God, that's where he'll do it. Notice how they walked in the futility of their mind. They are, number one, darkened in their understanding. Number two, alienated from the life of God. Now let's stop right there. Darkened in their understanding. And he says they walked in the futility of their minds. Does that tell you that maybe Paul is saying, hey guys, now that you're saved, turn your minds on. How many of us believe that when we get saved, we just all of a sudden throw our minds in neutral and we're just like, I know some of you look that way when I preach, but seriously, no, Christianity is a thinking person's belief. I'm not going to use the word religion. It's a thinking person's belief. In fact, I would go as far as to say, and I've told you this a few times, we should know why we believe what we believe. Here's the reason why, because pretty much everybody else that we deal with, they believe something different. And they don't believe that something that's consistent. And they don't believe something that's true. Do we know what we believe and can we tell them why we have that hope in us? Not that we're trying to bash them, not that we're trying to beat them. Not, you need to listen to me because I'm a Christian. Ha, ha, and I know all the truth. No, not at all. But so that we can show them in love the right way to salvation. So notice, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Here's the reason why. Because of the ignorance. Does that have to do with the mind? Yes. Absolutely. The ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Because they're just not sensitive to stuff. Notice the next word they use. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Here's an interesting thing. Callous, ignorance. Have you ever met somebody that's, that's callous? What are usually some qualities you see? What are qualities of people that are callous? Now, here's the reason why. All I'm doing is going through here and observing what it says, and I'm trying to think in my mind. How can I relate that with what I see today? Callous. Not very kind. Not very kind? They're they're okay, hard hearted. These are all Christianese words. Let's let's affected by things. Cynical? Other people. They're not what? Affected by things that other people would be affected by. Okay. How about anybody, anybody here work with their hands? You get callous on your hands? What's it do? Makes them rough. Uh, back when I was playing drums a lot more consistently than I am now, man, I had like some king callous on my hands. It was awesome. They look like Hulk hands. Now they don't. Now they're sensitive little dainty things. <laughs> anyway, I actually played a show not too long ago and played really hard and got a big blister. And I was like, man, that hasn't happened in like four years. Because I just hadn't. Didn't have any callus on my hand to do that. My, my hands was sensitive. Okay? And that's what this is talking about is the fact that these people, when they walk, they're ignorant in their minds, they're futile, and they're not sensitive 
to people. Notice, but they walk in sensuality. They're greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They're greedy for sin. Hey, man, let's go do this. Why not? Let's just, let's just be greedy for that kind of sin. In other words, it encompasses the whole idea of selfishness. They are selfish people. Now, if we think about that they're callous, that they're all about sensuality, that they're greedy to do wrong things, let's think about the contrast, because remember, that's what he's making. No longer are you to walk like that stuff. And here's the characterization. Notice what he says now, verse 20. But that's not the way that you learned Christ. That's almost like a sledgehammer on the head. A dumb moment, right? But that's not how you learned about Christ. Notice this. Here's what he says. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him. What is that? Does anybody know? Anybody know? You've heard about him and were taught in him. Heard about him. Salvation. Faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. If you've heard about him, if you've come to salvation by hearing the word of God, and number two, what is this? You were taught in him. What is biblical teaching? Starts with a D. Now, if you hear about him and you're saved, what? Discipleship. Growing in your relationship with the Lord. Growing with him. Not just staying an infant. Not just getting kicked around like the Bible tells us. Not being tossed to and fro by every little piece of, oh, I believe this, I believe this. And it just, oh, yeah, I need to go. Oh, no, I need to go there. No. It's talking about being built up in knowing our God. And how do we know him? Through the scriptures. And so notice, if, assuming that, we heard, him, we heard about him and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to what? To put off your old self. Is it not up there? It is, it is up there. To what? Put off your old self. Your old self. Everybody wake up. I'm serious. Today is application day. Everybody wake up. To put off your old self. Why? Because a lot of times when people get saved, they, just, they, they, get saved, they just keep walking as if they're deceived. They keep walking in the same way, in the same pattern. Anybody know the definition of insanity? doing the same thing over and over and over and over and expecting different results. If you're frustrated with your Christian, wi uh, Christian wife, I'm not frustrated with my Christian wife. I love you. I'm sorry. If you're frustrated with your Christian life, the chances are is because we haven't read what God said and said, okay, what does this mean? And now we've said, how does it apply to our lives? Well, here's what we've learned so far. Whatever we were walking like before we came to Christ, that is not the way we need to walk anymore. That is not it. Why? Because we are to put off your old self. Does everybody see the volitional response in that statement? Because you can be saved and, walked and walk in a carnal manner and walk according to your flesh and be greedy and be callous and be looking for every opportunity to participate in some sort of sin. But what Paul is saying here is, man, that's not logical. That's not how you learned about Jesus. You are to put off your old self, which belongs to where? Your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The old you is garbage. Don't wear it. Take it off. It is not part of you. The greatest thing, and this is kind of strange, when you're born again, you come out naked again. Don't put on the same clothes. Get some new clothes. Preach. 
<laughs> What'd you say? Are you making fun? No, this is awesome. I'm gonna smack you. Okay. Well, then I love you then. Think about this seriously, though. Hey, you never know. Who who was in the life group that was conspiring to say stuff? Wes. <laughs> Yeah, they said they were at one time when I was going to say something. Like, Amen. Just to throw me off. Yeah, because God would want you to do that. Anyway, I'm just playing. Just joking. Here's what we're talking about. When we talk about application, all of a sudden that's when you've got to deal with the hard passages. And here's the compare and contrast you make. Get out a piece of paper. Draw a big line in the middle. Who was I before I knew Jesus? List it. Enlist your stuff, man. Stick your skeletons on there. Be honest with yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Don't lie to yourself. You know it's there. God knows it's there. Who are you kidding? Nobody. List it out. And now here's the thing. Maybe you haven't been walking with the Lord very long. Maybe you're in one of those situations where you're like, okay, wait a second. I know what I should be doing, but I'm just not doing it. Awesome. In that category, you need to put how I should now live. List it out. Tell you what. What we're getting ready to look at is going to be a great place to start on how we should live. So notice. Put on a new self. Don't gratify the desires of a sinful nature, but rather put on Christ. Romans 13, 14. Write it down. Memorize it. We have a new life. We are a new creation. And because that is a spiritual reality, it's only logical that we would walk in a new way. Now, let's look at this. Verse 23, and to be what? Renewed. Why would you have to renew something? You better renew this before it what? Expires. You have expired. When you come to Christ, the old you have, has expired. Your warranty for that body is null and void. Your attitudes, the way that you thought, terrible. I didn't come to Christ until I was 21 years old. I had 21 years of being taught how to think like the world thinks. Sure, abort children. It's not got anything to do with me. Fine, go ahead and do it. Gays want to get married? Awesome, let them do it. I don't care. And I had opinions about just eh, whatever on all kinds of issues. But when I came to know Christ and I realized, wow, life is so much more than just, boom, there's a baby. Life begins at the time of conception. When I started to realize, wow, God totally didn't create those things to go together. And so, therefore, that's why it's not right. And Scripture had to reteach me how to think. Why? Because here's the thing. The world wants to tell you everything that is opposite of Scripture. Newsflash. The world hates Christ. The world hates God. And the way that they show that is they try to teach us through news, through magazines, through television, through anything that they possibly can, through video games, through whatever, to try to indoctrinate you when you don't realize it to think like they do. Garbage in, garbage out. That's what happens. I've said this before and I'll say it again. This right here that hopefully you hold in your hand right now is the only truth on the face of this earth. Nothing else is true. People will let you down. Commentators are going to lie to you. Sports teams are going to fail you. Dancing like the stars is going to suck like always. Whatever. <laughs> All of that stuff. And here's the thing though, man. That's what we get so caught up in. We get totally enraptured and wrapped up in those things. And what do they benefit us? 
Anybody ever sit and watch one of those programs and after you were done, you sit back and you thought, I wish I had those two hours back. Man, that sucked. Uh, there's so much better things I could have done than that. I tell you, our old self would have fallen for that stuff. We would have bit the worm. We would have taken it. And we would have just been fished right out of the pond just like everybody else. Christ has called us to think differently. Our minds are to be renewed. How do you renew your mind? With truth. You have to be retaught as a baby how now you should speak, how you should walk, how you should think, and how you should engage life. Because here's the reason why. If it's left up to me, in my opinion, it's not going to be a God-glorifying thing. It's not. I, I'm not a holy person. I don't have holy instructions whatsoever. I have God, and if I don't pay attention to Him, I'm going to lead everybody astray, period. Period. The answers are found in God's Word. Notice this. And to be renewed in the spirit of your what? That's where it happens. Notice this. And to put on the new self. Get yourself some new clothes, right? Created after what? The likeness of God. Hold on. Think about this real quick. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Genesis 1, chapters 26 and 27. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so he made them male and female. In the likeness of God. You know what this is talking about? When you come to Christ, put off the old you and now put on the new you, which is in the likeness of God, which is where you should have been at to begin with. It was sin that separated you. It was sin that cut you off of the tree. Now that we are no longer separated and we have true righteousness and true holiness because we are in Christ, we have been brought back to a right relationship with God. You are back to where you need to be now. Now let's start acting like it. And so here's what he says. Verse 25 Therefore, anytime you see therefore, ask what? What's that there for? Everything he just told us. Because you should now put off the old self and put on the new self and live in that manner, let's figure out how this is going to plug into our lives. Having put away falsehood, lies, Anybody bought into some lies recently? Any, I tell you, the greatest lies that we love to buy into are the ones we tell ourselves. Because we will lie to ourselves. Some of us could straight pass a polygraph because we've lied to ourselves so much we believe crap. It's like, I don't know if I should bring this up. The auditions for American Idol, those are our favorite episodes, right? Because what happened? <laughs> that's it but what did their mama and what did their daddy and what did their church tell them awesome. man they told them they were Pavarotti right Pavarotti. <laughs> and they walk out there and they're like I want to sing a song and you're right Simon's like oh gosh but think about that it's like people being lied to and buying into the lie of man I'm a great singer girls you're not Mariah Carey you're not. Guys, you're not whoever guy is a good singer. <laughs> you're not him. You're just not. You know? And that's the thing is, these poor girls, and, and, and after they're told all this really, like, honest criticism, and in those cases, I don't think Simon's being harsh. I think he's just being straight up. 
right? You know, uh, thank you. You suck. Bye. You're not going. You know that kind. Of, and they're all like, <laughs> you know, but they told me it was good. Well, they lied to you, and you bought into it. And when we buy into the lie, and when we're let down for what the reality of the situation is. That's when we fall on the emotional roller coaster and we get crushed. Putting away all falsehood. You know what that means? Putting away everything but this. Put it all away. It's not part of us anymore. Putting away all falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Do you have a tendency to lie to people just to tell them what you want them to hear? Guys, if you're trying to get a date, you tell girls a bunch of stuff that's not true. Either about yourself or about them. Don't. Because when they find out you're a liar, they're not attracted to that. They're not. Girls, are you lying to yourself? Stop it. He's not going to love you because of your body. He's not. So many girls buy into that lie. Well, if I show enough skin, they'll care about me. No, they don't. Any godly man that is a woman that you would want to end up with would be attracted to you because you worship the Lord. That's why I was attracted to my wife. Was a simple fact I saw her praising God and I was like, dang, she's hot. Right? Because when you see somebody who has a heart that is devoted to the Lord, I would think that would be an admirable quality that you would want to have. Don't buy into the lie of, I need to find somebody, I need to find somebody, I need to find somebody. Jesus is standing right there. Who else are you looking for? And who else is going to put you with somebody else better than you can? Let Jesus be your matchmaker, man, not whatever that online crap is. Moving on. Let's see here. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. What is he talking about? If we're members of one another, what's he t what context is he talking about? In what? Who said it? In the church. Good one, Mark. In the church. <laughs> Don't lie to brothers and sisters you go to church with. Don't lie to them. Be honest with them. Do you like this? I love you, but not really. I don't. And I'd much rather tell you the truth and lie to you about it and make you think something that I don't believe. Are they going to be hurt? Maybe a little bit. But isn't it so much better to tell the truth about it and honor God with it instead of, oh, well, I'm going to sacrifice obedience to God for their feelings. Don't choose that. Moving on. Verse 26. This is a good one. Be angry. Oh, I like that. Read it again. Be angry, right? Be angry. We can be angry about some stuff, but notice this. And do not what? Sin. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What are some things that you could be angry about and not sin? What's that? Injustices that go on? What else? God's will? You're angry about God's will? No, I'm just saying you can be like not happy with it. Okay. Okay. What else? Come on. Yeah. What? Nobody in here ever gets angry? Children. Children? <laughs> Sometimes you get angry about children? Okay. What else? This, this applies directly to our lives. You go the whole week and you don't get angry about anything. Failing. Failing? Who said that? Failing? Gossip, getting angry about that. What else? Huh? Your job. Good one. The state of the world. The state of the world right now. Is it possible for Christians to have a righteous anger? Yes. 
Yeah, they're, they're the only ones that can have a righteous anger because they see the world for what it is. If you're upset because maybe the people that, that are just two streets over from us don't know the gospel, then that's fine. Let's get angry about that because nobody's reached them. But what does that also say? Yeah. That what? That we, need to get out there. that we probably need to get out there and share it with them. Is that being obedient? Yeah. What would be a way to be angry about that and sin about it? Not do anything. Not do anything. Man, hold on. Because we're getting on to something. I'm angry because a lot of people around me, where I'm at right now, don't know Christ. I'm upset about that. That's upsetting to me. And here's what we, here, here's what we rationalize in our minds, right? Somebody should really go tell them the gospel. Who does God want to use? You. You. And does he want you to physically present the gospel to them with your mouth? Absolutely. He doesn't want you to go clean all the trash up in their yard and then not say anything. And we preach the gospel through our actions. No, you didn't. You did something nice that anybody else could have or would have done. He wants you to actually let that person know, I love you enough, but I want to tell you this. Give me five minutes of your time. Now, the way to sin would be not do anything, get mad at other people for not doing it when we haven't done it ourselves. Notice what else it says. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? Seek resolve with people. If you know a situation's gotten tense, two hardest words to say in the English language, I'm sorry. Husbands, wives, a lot of times you just might have to sit there and go, you know what, I'm sorry. And just suck it up and don't be angry and sin about it and hate over it look at the next part verse 27 here's the reason why that you want to confess that sin or, or make that resolve don't let the sun go down on your anger 27 and give no opportunity to the devil words that are interchangeable with this are foothold give a foothold to the devil in your relationship if you're upset with your spouse or you're upset with another person, a friend of yours or whatever, here's the thing. Satan loves it. Great. Sin about it. Sin about it. Don't resolve it. Get bitter. Get pissy. Get mad. Whatever. And then you know what Satan comes in? And he grabs that ankle. And he starts dragging you into a direction you do not need to go. All because you weren't going to be the one who said you were sorry. And you weren't going to fess up to it, and you weren't going to make amends, and you weren't going to resolve. Here's the thing. It's not about you, you, you. It's not about me, me, me. It's about Him. It's about Him. This all winds it up here in just a second. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Anybody in here ever stolen anything? What's, what's the solution for that? But rather, now that you live in this new life that Christ has provided, but rather, let him labor. Let him work. Instead of his hands being on stuff that isn't his, let him work for stuff that will be his. Let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share what? With anyone in need. Stealing stuff is about what? Somebody, what would be the purpose in stealing, stealing something? Getting something for nothing. Because who wants to have it? You. Do you guys get how the former life is very selfish and very self-centered? Do you guys see how the new life that is in Christ is very much about what can I do for others? Instead of you stealing and being all about you and how much can I get and how much stuff can I have, instead, go to work, make an honest living, and have something extra so that you can provide for somebody else that might not have anything. 
Do something for somebody else if you're a thief. That is your old way of life. You've been saved. Now let's start walking like it. Do something for somebody else. Let's move on here. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Uh, corrupting, if you do research on this word, you see that it also means rotten. It also means putrid. Putrid talk come out of your mouths. Now notice, but, observing, what is but? What is but going to show us? Not show us your butt. What is but going to show us? What? It's a contrast. He's going to contrast. What in the world does it mean, corrupting talk? Does that mean I can't drop the F-bomb? I prefer you not to. But what in the world does corrupting talk mean? Notice, let no, no, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But what does it say? Only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. What does this tell us about what corrupting talk is? Tearing people down. Complaining about everything. Whining. Moaning. Going on and on. Slandering other people. Instead, our speech should be filled with what? Encouragement. When's the last time you just sought to encourage some person? Just because you're a believer. Like, you know what? I, I could tell them that their spaghetti is just awful and just let them know what a crappy cook they are. Instead, I could encourage them and say, hey, you need to fix this for me. Thank you. That's kind of a weird example. <laughs> but, I mean, seriously. Is it not easy to find the bad things and to be vocal about them? That's pretty easy, isn't it? Anybody ever gone? Here's the thing. Here, I read this online one time. You go to a restaurant. You walk in. The people are really nice. You order your food. People behind the counter are just awesome to you, trying to supply your every need. You sit down, you eat. The food is phenomenal, you know, and, 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 it, and it's just you're, just, you're mind blown how great it is. And then you need to go to the restroom. You go in there, restroom is dirty. You come back out, you get your stuff, you leave. What are you going to remember about that trip to the restaurant? The bathroom. Because for some reason in our minds, we gravitate towards the negative. Instead of wanting to look at the positive about everything, we immediately want to gravitate towards the negative. Don't tell me that you don't. I know you do. I do. Everybody does. But notice, that is a former way of thinking. Instead of us being so quick to complain and have putrid words come out of our mouth, why not seek to encourage people? Let me ask you this. If you encourage somebody, you think they're going to get mad? Mike, it was really good hanging out with you today. You think... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might have picked up over the microphone a little bit. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, Mike. And we'll just go ahead and throw that word in there, too. So, <laughs> more times than not, that doesn't happen. But, but here's, here's, here's the thing. Do you think people are going to be like, why are you encouraging me? Why are you being nice to me? Well, they might be at first because maybe you've never been that way before. But I tell you, if you start making a pattern of your life to do that and to put it into action, it would be very different. Verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Hmm. Now we're going to have to do some observing. What would it be to grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, let me ask you a question. Where is the Holy Spirit? 
inside, he don't say in your heart, please don't, okay? Your heart's too small for him to fit in there. He's in your life, okay? He is, he's also, he also takes on the role of, of what we would know as the conscience. And he becomes a very overbearing source. He's the one that when you're thinking about doing that, and he says, no, don't do that. That's the Holy Spirit. Whenever you look at everything and you could easily go, man, that's a coincidence. It's not. It's the Holy Spirit doing things in your life, convicting you. When you're reading the Bible and you're like, man, I don't know what that's there for, even though it says there for. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings that kind of comfort. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? Anything that we might participate in our lives as believers that is not glorifying to God. That's how you grieve the Holy Spirit. Anybody been a Christian for a while, you sinned and you felt really bad about it? Okay, usually if you're not just going off the deep end about things, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit bringing you to conviction and paddling you and letting you know, that was messed up, man. And you've messed up your, your communication with God. It's messed up. Now, here's an interesting thing. I love lists in the Bible. Here's the reason why. We all read through them really quick like we know what every word means. We don't apply any of it. And we chalk it up in a notch in our, in our righteous belt that we've read that part of Scripture. So let's go through this very slowly. Anybody know who I had help with on these words? Webster. Webster. Loving. Cute little kid. Here we go. Verse 31. Let. Now stop. Let. What does that immediately imply? Anybody know? Allow. Allow. In other words, it's a volitional response volitional response taking this on let all bitterness wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice now what in the world do all these words mean me and Webster hung out and here's what I came up with bitterness harsh reproachful sharp and resentful Guess where that's supposed to go? Away. Notice the next one. Wrath. A violent anger. Guess where it goes? Away. Anger. This is a simple one. We know this one, right? An emotional reaction of extreme displeasure. Away. The next one. Clamor. Anybody know what clamor means? Mine says brawling. Brawling? Okay. Webster's Dictionary defined clamor as being loudly insistent, as in a protest or objection to something. Now, does that mean that you can't go to a rally and vote your mind and that kind of stuff? No. But it actually kind of gives the warrant of divisiveness, trying to rally people around your opinion when it might not necessarily be scriptural and doing it spitefully. Notice the next one. Slander. False charges that defame another's reputation. They're to be put away from you along with all malice. Anybody know what malice is? Hate. Hate. Webster defines it to cause harm without any legal justification whatsoever. Now think about this real quick. Let's just spell all this out for what Paul's saying. Here's what you need to do. You need to take anything that would be harshly reproachful, 
or that you would be sharp and resentful about, anything that you would express violent anger or you would have an emotional reaction of extreme displeasure, anything that you would be loudly insistent upon or that you would bring false charges to defame somebody's reputation or that you would want to cause somebody else some sort of harm bodily, all that stuff needs to go away. Because that's not who we are anymore. We're a new creation in Christ. Well, Paul, what should we do instead, man? Those are all the things that I really enjoy. I love hating people. What should we do instead, Paul? Well, you should walk in this newness of life, and here's what it looks like. Be kind to one another. Guess what I did for that word? I looked it up. Of a sympathetic nature. Are you sympathetic with people? Is your fuse like super short and people burn it quickly? Do you have a hard time just loving others? Anybody in here just don't like people? Hey, some of us will admit it. A lot of times when we don't like people, you know what that comes down to? I'll be honest with you. We're not walking in the new life that Christ has provided. That stuff can be overcome. Why? Because Christ has overcome it. And Christ came to die for what? Us. Well, in, in general, people. Every opportunity is an opportunity. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, easily moved to love, pity, or sorrow. Good, good word there. Forgiving one another, to cease to feel resentment towards, forgiving one another. Notice, instead of being all violent and all angry and messed up and pissed off all the time, here's what you should be. Kind to people, very tender-hearted to them, and forgiving them. Forgive one another as what? God in Christ forgave you. It makes me think back when Peter was like, Jesus, Jesus, hold on, man. Should I forgive my brother seven times if he messes me over? And Jesus is like, dude, not seven times, 70 times seven. You know what Peter probably said? I think it's in the Greek. Good googly moogly is probably what he said. Why? Because he thought seven times was a big deal. The same person offended me over and over and over. Seven times should I forgive him? Man, keep forgiving him until your face falls off is what he's saying. Let it be characteristic of you that you are a forgiving person. Now, here's how this all came about. I read through and I observed. And I asked myself, what does all this mean? Who's it applied to? Well, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus in particular. So he's writing to a church, a body of believers. And what is he talking about? He's talking about people who are probably new believers who were walking in this way, but now that they've come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, all of a sudden they got this whole new world that is open to them that they haven't even bothered to step into and take advantage of. So what does that world look like? Well, here's one of the things that we know, and let's just skim down through the Scriptures so we can see it. What we know is, is we're not to have our old self, but instead we're supposed to put on our new self. We're supposed to put away falsehood. We're supposed to speak the truth with our neighbor. We're all members of one body. We're not to be angry with people, therefore, so we don't sin. If we are angry with people, we're supposed to resolve it quickly. Why? Because if we don't, Satan will step in and he will start to drag us away in a direction that we don't need to go. If we're thieves, we need to start doing some sort of honest work so that we can provide for other people and not constantly be about ourselves. If we have slanderous and tearing down and corruptive talk where we're just completely overcritical of people, stop that crap. Don't do that anymore. Instead, seek the opportunity to build somebody up. 
Seek the opportunity to be better than that and to walk in a newness of life. If you've got any malice in your life, if you've got any anger, wrath, bitterness, if you're just hateful about things, let all that stuff go. But man, that's way easier to say than to do. Here's how you do it. You start looking at your life as God sees it. When you put on the new self and you have a heavenly perspective about things, you're saved, you're going to heaven. It's a really bad thing that people around you might not be saved and they might not be going there and they're going to burn in hell forever. Maybe I need to say something. When you start seeing things in an eternal perspective, all of a sudden the things of your life don't matter that much. All of a sudden all the things that you were concerned about in a worldly sense, they don't matter. Because when calamity comes now, you can sit back and you go, you know what, God will take care of this. There's no reason to get all bent out of shape. Instead of looking for opportunities to serve yourself and how am I going to get out of this problem? Oh my gosh, what are we going to do about this? And we're so frantic about our lives. Instead, we start to be more concerned about the life that Christ wants us to live. So in doing so, be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted. Forgive people quickly. Why? What is the example for that, Paul? Because Christ forgave you. So here's a question I want us to think about. Everybody close your eyes for just a second. Close your eyes. And I see when you're peeking, so don't cheat. You have to repent of that. Think for just one second. Forgiving others as God in Christ forgave you. Now let me ask you a question. You can think about this very vividly. How much did Christ forgive you? You know what that requires? It requires doing an inventory of the old self. It requires opening up that door and shuffling through those skeletons in the closet and checking out, man, this was me, and this was me, and this still kind of is me, but I know it shouldn't be, and this is very much me, but man, it needs to be in the closet, I need to shut the door on it. And we start to recycle how awful, how sinful, how devoid and bankrupt of any kind of saving grace that we were in an old life. All of a sudden we can answer the question when we think about that, how much were we forgiven? How much was I forgiven? How much were you forgiven? How much was relieved from us by the death of Christ? Now ask yourself, did I deserve it in any way? Did I say, hey Jesus, look over here. Check me out. Man, I'm cool. Look at how great I look today, God. Look at how much I dressed up for church. Look how smart I am. Look at the good grade I got on this test. No. There is no reason why Christ should have ever looked my way. But he did. Now you might be thinking to yourself, okay, so what does that mean? Very simply, there might be no reason whatsoever that somebody should get your forgiveness. But that doesn't change the fact that we should give it to them. Why? Because we should forgive others as God in Christ, His Son, dying on a cross for us to wipe a slate clean as He forgave us. How did He do that? Beyond measure of great proportion. Father, I just pray that in our lives, we would be a people who when we read God's Word, we would do it. We wouldn't rationalize it. We wouldn't think that just because we've read that we are mature 
the, the, the Pharisees knew the Scriptures better than anybody, and they were so blinded by their knowledge, they missed the Messiah. Father, Your Word teaches solidly spiritual maturity does not come from knowing, it comes from doing. And I pray, God, that when we read the Word of God, we would do it. And it's in Christ's name, amen. Now, before we wrap up, because we don't have any songs or anything, but before we wrap up, don't get your stuff ready to leave. That's extremely rude, and this is the most important thing I have to tell you, okay? I want you to think about what or how would your life be different if you just obeyed what you read? How would your life, your relationships, how would your communication with your parents or your spouse or your friends or your teacher or your boss or other workers or people here at church be different if you threw off all falsehood and you spoke honestly, if you let anger go and sought to resolve that? If we tried to seek to be tender-hearted, if we asked the Holy Spirit, please, I'm not tender-hearted and I hate people. Please, God, help me to have a love for people, to be kind and tender-hearted to them. Help me to forgive those people who have wronged me. How would your life be different? See, here's the trick is we would all be closer to God because that is how God operates. That's how He operates, tender-hearted and forgiving. My encouragement to you is, is to pray, because you can't do it on your own. Pray to God to change us, to be obedient to what we read. Not just see it, but do it. Amen? Preach it. Preach it. Thank you, guys.